Our sermon text for today is Romans 1, 16 through 32. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, Strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. This is not going to be a one-shot sermon. This is not going to be something that I can do in one day. Um, I'm going to have to come back and finish up this particular talk next week simply um, simply because the gravity and the weight of this talk, of this text. Um. My reticence is not due to a fear of dealing with whatever the scriptures lead us to. It's not that. Um, It's just a soberness, a feeling of the weight of how this impacts, how this this lands in our world today. Um, 20 years ago, this chapter could have been preached with little or no thought given to any really ramifications. Today is different. Um, We know that we have underestimated how many people in our society struggle 
with same-sex attraction and how many people feel that they have to live in hiding in the church for fear that if they were to expose that struggle in their lives, that they may be ostracized and rejected. Um, And then also, maintaining the truth of God's word, what God says about that particular behavior. And so, um, man, there's no easy way to do this, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump into it. Um, Some of you may be aware of uh, a pastor named Tim Keller. He's a man who I respect very much. Um, We don't function in the same theological tradition. He's a Presbyterian. We're not, but um, there has been arguably no greater mouthpiece of the gospel to the common man all the way up to the most academic circles that has had more of an impact than Tim Keller over the last 20 years. Um, He founded the wonderful Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. They have 5,000 members at this church. Uh, they have lots and lots and lots and lots of smart people that go to this church. And so um, I doubt I could be their secretary. So um, receptionist. Um, Tim Keller lectures uh, at Oxford, Princeton, you name it. Um, he defends the faith, the gospel with clarity, um, with a savvy that I wish I had. And so... It, it, ironically, uh, um, or coincidentally, he just announced his retirement just uh, just recently, and so this summer he will no, he will uh, cease to lead Redeemer Press. Um, but he's made a really a big impact on my life, and if you've read any of his books, he's made an impact on your life. Um, recently, he was awarded the uh, Kuiper Prize for Excellence in Reformed Theology and Public Witness by Princeton Theological Seminary. Sounds really important, doesn't it? Um, I came in a close second for that, but they, they gave it to Tim Keller. And um, they awarded him this prize, and immediately, because he is known as a biblical conservative, uh, especially in regards to moral issues, um, specifically LGBTQ, um, the staff and the faculty and the students mutinied. And after anguishing through this, and the president of Princeton Seminary did anguish over this because he did not want to rescind this award. He did. He rescinded the award. And in Tim Keller style and class, he's still going to go give the lecture and not get the award. I think that's really cool. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Abraham Kuyper was an a incredible theologian at the end of the 18th, 18th century and just uh, had a huge impact on a lot of a lot of people in terms of the gospel. Um, hearing stories like this has can make some of us angry. It can make us feel something. Um, hearing stories like this sometimes reduces us to feeling like a minority, like we're whack jobs, and it could stir up some anger inside of us as though we're being unfairly treated. And um, I'm not trying to be the bearer of bad news. But that seems to be the trend, and I really don't see that trend slowing down anytime soon. Um, There's a threat here. And to me, the the grave threat in regards to this tension that we're living in um, is not that churches may lose their tax-exempt status if they preach God's word. That's not something I'm, I'm really worried about. It's nice, but 
That's not something I'm worried about. I think the biggest threat that we face as followers of Jesus, if we continue to remain faithful to the gospel, is that the vitriol of the world that will, that will be poured out on all of us could lead to a deterioration of our most fundamental values as followers of Jesus. What I'm concerned about more than anything else is that people who claim to follow Jesus will cease to love their enemies well. What I'm afraid of is that people who claim to follow Jesus will stop peacemaking or compartmentalize peacemaking so that we feel the need to make peace with some people, but then there are certain categories of people that don't deserve our peacemaking or our love or our winsome savvy. And I'm afraid that we will cease to pray for people who mistreat us. This is the big threat in my mind, is that the vitriol of the world will cause us to respond in anger and rebellion against God's word himself. And we are no better We are no better at that point than the people who mistreat us. So prepare your hearts. Get your hearts ready. This is a battle that we're in. Be reminded of what Paul told the Ephesians, that we don't fight against people, flesh and blood. Those aren't our enemies. Why would Paul say that? Because the temptation is to view our enemies as flesh and blood, as each other. We saw this. I addressed this last week in our service. We saw this over the last election cycle. Christians hammering one another and ridiculing one another based on political issues. This is something that's already seeped into the church. Vitriol being poured out on one another rather than doing the simplest, not not easiest, but the simplest teachings of Jesus to love our enemies, to be peacemakers, and to pray for those who mistreat us. This is the big threat in my mind. Um, The issue of homosexuality growing up for me, I'll be honest, was always something that I had no category for. I couldn't relate to it. It seemed repulsive to me. But when I found myself in my first year of college and I was in student ministry, this would have been the spring of 1993, there was a young African-American man who was in our men's dorm who in a moment of weakness came out to me in 1993. In a mostly white college, a young black man struggling with same-sex attraction In a moment of weakness and fear, he felt alone. The tension that he felt inside of him, the angst in begging God over and over and over and over again to take away that thing from him, and that prayer was not answered. Finds himself in Bible college, a Jesus-loving young man, and in a moment of weakness and vulnerability, shared with me his deepest, most haunting secret. Um... There were lots of people that for years I look back on that I would think about how much I respected some of these people. Um, I remember a man who was from East Africa. And in our men's dorm, we had this prayer room. 
And I would go into the prayer room a couple of times a day, spend a few minutes with God and was trying to cultivate a, a prayer life of my own at this very immature young stage of my Christianity. And I remember walking in and this East African man every single day was laying prostrate on the floor, praying and interceding for God to bring the gospel to the nations and to save the lost. This guy was so impressive. I remember one Saturday morning I went in and the the prayer room had two compartments. And I remember walking in, the lights were off, and he was laying across the threshold of one of the rooms into the other room, and he was praying fervently that the gospel would seep into the nations and bring life to people who were lost. I spent, I don't know how long in there, 10, 15, 20 minutes. It was a Saturday. I had clothes the wash. Still trying to figure that out, you know. And um, I come back eight hours later. He is still on the floor in the exact same position praying that God would saturate the nations with the gospel. When I walked in, I sort of felt like, oh, what's the point, you know? (laughs) He's pretty much got mine covered today. So how could, you know, will God even hear me this, you know, right now? Um, I respect him. I really do. I'm sure he's doing great things in his homeland. Looking back now, This young African-American man, I have as much respect for him as I have for anybody that I went to school with. He was a leper living alone in our world. He was facing a tension in regards to sin and brokenness that I can't relate to. He didn't get to do what I got to do. When I went to Bible college, I thought I was the only one that struggled with lust. Then I found out, Everybody did. And so I had groups of guys that I could talk with and say, hey, I've been struggling this week. And, and uh, he couldn't do that. Nobody would have understood his struggle. If I were to stumble, there's forgiveness. If he were to stumble, he would have been rejected. He would have lost his friends. He would have been kicked out. This is what he was facing. It was all the way back then in the spring of 1993 that God put a human face on the issue of homosexuality. He put a human face on it. And I'm really, really glad he did. I'm really glad he did. Um, I'm sure anyone who is a cynic or a, or a skeptic would say, well, that's really nice. Now you're gonna, now the other shoe's going to drop and you're going to show that you are nothing but a bigot. Um, The understanding that we have in the church is that we build our lives on this book. We hold to this as the word of God. Um, We're not going to coerce people into believing that. We're going to encourage them to. We really believe that people should build their lives on these words. And so I don't come today uh, with any other agenda than to do my very best to be faithful to God's word. That's my only agenda. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and jump into it. And I want to tackle a little bit of this issue on the front end because we live in a world today where the issue of homosexuality is not just accepted, but it is triumphed as a virtue. And to speak in any way, even with the most winsome savvy on the issue of homosexuality, if I show my cards or if you show your cards that you are against that lifestyle, then we are going to experience the fury 
of our world, the judgment of our world. Um, That's hard. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. Um, There are people who would like to, who would have us believe that when Paul speaks of homosexuality in this text, as he does in other places, as other writers of the New Testament and the Old Testament do, um, that they didn't have the sophistication that we do today. They would say that today we have a thing, we have things like gay marriage or monogamous same-sex relationships, and this would have been unheard of back then. And that's just simply not true. That's simply not true. Um, The Emperor Nero, for instance, who was ruling over the Roman Empire when Paul wrote these words, was living in a same-sex marriage. Um, 400 years before Paul wrote these words, the philosopher Plato triumphed the the, uh, um, erotic, same-sex, sustaining relationships that people should consider jumping into. He commended those to our culture in his writings. This was not unfamiliar back then. This was not unfamiliar because there are those who would say that really the kind of homosexuality that Paul was condemning wasn't what we see a lot of today. He was talking about men who exploit young boys and he was talking about an an issue of abuse that uh, that we all understand is, is despicable in our culture today. And while that did happen back then, as it's happened in every era, in every culture, you can't assume that that's only what Paul had in mind. There are some who also say that it's Paul was writing from a Jewish perspective because in the Old Testament, um, it teaches that um, uh, homosexuality is to be outlawed and it's called an abomination by God when two men or two women lay together, um, that Paul was speaking and condemning this from the posture of being a Jewish person who just just could not wrap his mind around this issue. Well, the text itself proves that that's not correct because Paul doesn't say in Romans 1, we Jews have a real problem with this kind of behavior. He doesn't say that. He appeals to something beyond the law. He appeals to a thing called natural revelation. Natural revelation is pretty much spelled out in Romans chapter 1. Look at Romans 1 verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, is he talking to people who have heard the gospel, who have rejected it, or is he talking about something else? Let's find out. Look at the next verse. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has God shown it to them? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Now, what Paul's not saying here is that without ever hearing the gospel, we should know about things like the virgin birth or justification by faith. That's not what he's talking about here. 
He's talking about a common knowledge that every single person who has ever lived or ever will live has locked inside of their DNA. They simply know how God feels about certain things. And he says that because of this, there is no person that has an excuse before God. Every person who has ever lived or ever will live is without excuse. So Paul's not arguing here from the law of Moses, which would have been a really powerful argument. He doesn't say Leviticus 19 says this. He says from creation forward, every single person who has ever existed knows deep down in their knower what God's standards are on basic moral issues. As a matter of fact, we have to make ourselves wise and trick ourselves into believing things that are obviously wrong into believing that they're right, like abortion. Like over the last 40 years, 50 million babies have been killed. I've got a friend who preaches in a really big city, in a very political city. And he says, I don't use the word abortion. I said, why? He said, because in my political city, it carries too much baggage. And I said, so what do you say? He says, I say killing babies. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty blunt. <laughs> um, he doesn't say that to uh, stick his finger in people's eyes. He just says that because I want people to feel the weight of the sin of this. We know this. We've got to trick ourselves and get real scholarly to work our way out of feeling the weight of how terrible that is. Man, I wish I could just stop and be quiet. Uh, but let's carry on. So I want to get underneath the issue of homosexuality for a little bit first. Because in order to know why Paul seemingly randomly picks out Homosexuality, like why, almost like why does he go there? There are all these other sins in our world. Is he saying that homosexuality is the worst sin of all? Is that what he's saying here? I don't think he is, and I'll tell you why shortly. Um, but I want to get underneath this first. So if you can still tolerate listening. Um, Romans chapter 1, let's go back to verse 16. Look at verse 16. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, God's salvation is available to everyone. Now, here's the question. Who needs to be saved? Let's look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, not some, but all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So all of us, and then later in chapter uh, chapters 2 and 3, Paul teases out, just who is guilty before God exactly? And he says, all people. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has. No matter how good you are, no matter how sweet you are to your husband or your wife, no matter how morally upright you are with your children and training them to go the way that they should go, no matter how, how, no matter how well you are at paying your taxes and paying your tithes and all the other stuff that we like, church attendance, we are all guilty before God and we all need to be saved. Man, what I just said right there is hated by a lot of people. We have finally gotten to a place in our culture because Christians have been the majority for so long. We've finally gotten to the place in our culture where literally 
We are either an aroma of life to some or an aroma of death to others, like Paul said to the Corinthians. There's no in-between anymore. There's no middle ground. I'm not trying to be the bearer of bad news and prophesy doom over our church. Um, I don't want our church to feel doom. I want us to feel wonderful potluck dinners and have a lot of fun together. I want us to go camping together and, have, you know, and sing with the guitar around the campfire. I want to do stuff like that with you, not experience society's vitriol. But the core of our faith is not campfires and you know, kumbaya. It's different. It's Jesus. And so, uh, so everybody needs to be saved. Everybody needs to experience the power of Jesus' salvation, every one of us. And what's interesting is, is that when he says that everyone is guilty, everyone is guilty, every single person, all have fallen short of the glory of God, at that point in Paul's, in Paul's writing to these Roman Christians, he's talking about the Jewish people who were raised in the word of God, under the law of God, and he says, even you folks who have lived in God's word, gone to synagogue every single week, crossed your T's, dotted your I's, you are also guilty. Every one of us are. Every one of us are guilty. Now, you may not feel guilty. I'm not talking about how you feel. I'm talking about God's assessment of us. And so do we have the humility to say, okay, I don't feel like a bad guy. I don't feel like a bad girl. But this is what God says. This is how God assesses me where I am without Jesus. My life is an offense to him. My life is an offense. God wanted to fix that. That's a good thing. Now, here's the problem. Let's go a little bit further into this issue. Humanity doesn't just exist to do church, to sing songs, to do good things. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27... We are the, the reason we exist is in those two verses. Our identity is rooted in those two verses. Now, there are those who would say to today that we are sexual creatures. That inherently, and at our, at our very core, we are people who are erotic at our core. That is not what Scripture teaches. That's not what it teaches. It teaches something else about our identity. And this is where it takes some humility because a lot of us feel that our identity is in our sexual makeup. God's not, God does not say that in the scriptures. I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm not trying to trivialize it. But we have inflated it and made it so huge and made such a big idol of it that sometimes we can't even hear what Jesus, what God has told us about who we are inherently in him. Who are we? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Check this out. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Our image. So somehow we look like God. And he says the very first time God expressed his desire to make humanity, he was thinking about himself. I want people to be like me. That's our identity. That's our identity. Our identity is not in the things that we get to do in this life. God gave me legs, but that does not mean I am meant to run marathons, and I won't do it, okay? (laughs) 0.0 on the back of my car. Uh, Now, proudly, proudly have that. If you have a sticker, give give one of those to me. I really need one of those. Um, 
This is our identity is not in our what we do. It's in who we are and how we were crafted. And God crafted each of us after his image. He crafted each of us after him. His desire is that we look like him. How? Let's read on. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them, humankind, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then it goes on to say, God commissioning humankind to do something. Be fruitful and multiply. Do what? I've made you to look like me. Make more people that look like me. This is where evangelism comes from in the New Testament. This is why Paul says in Romans 1 that I'm going around the whole world calling people to repentance to embrace Jesus because Paul is being faithful to be fruitful and multiply. Make more people who don't look like God to look like God. I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but, uh, but that, that's what we're doing here. God has called us to look like him. Our identity is rooted in being like God. What does it mean that we are like God? We are God's co-rulers of this earth. We are called to have dominion over this earth and rule this earth at God's side. So we are to do God's bidding. We are to represent God in everything that we do in our work, in our marriages, everything that we put our hand to, our hobbies, everything, even in our sexuality, we are to bear a God-likeness in everything that we do because it's who we are. What is God saying here? Implicitly, God is placing a claim over every person who exists. You're mine. I made you. I made you. I get to do with you what I want to do with you. Now, here's what's also cool. God also loves us. He also loves us. That's what our culture really loves that. So I want to make sure I throw that in some too. So God really loves us. Um, so what are, we, what are we learning here? When humanity goes wrong, so does the world. When humanity goes wrong, so does the world. Think about uh, the nightclub murders that have happened this week. I heard a story about two kids being arrested because they uh, beat and tortured an infant. There was a woman here in Memphis just this last week. She was beaten with a tire iron in her driveway in, in, in the morning by, by, by a criminal. I mean, terrible things like this are happening all over the place. And to get further underneath the issue of homosexuality and why Paul brings it up in Romans 1, you can't read Romans 1 by itself. So I'm going to spend the rest of this message in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to come back next week, and we're going to finish this up. You really, really need to hear part two. Okay, part one's not going to be enough. So um, that's my ploy to get you to come back. Um, so Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to look at verses 16 through 23. Romans 8, 16 through 23. You ready? Okay? And you may not like me, but I mean, are you okay? You good? You all right? Okay. We're trying to moderate the temperature here really well, you know. Um, I'm thankful. I'm really, really thankful that it's not 85 degrees in here. Um, 
I'm just, I was just recalling how every once or twice a summer, at our old place, as wonderful as it was, we would walk in and the AC didn't work. And I was forced, God was forcing me to preach shorter. So um, we don't have that problem here yet. Okay. I don't know why I'm telling you all this. Okay. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 23. Romans 8, 16 through 23. Now, Paul is anticipating Romans 8 as he's saying Romans 1. Y'all with me? So you can't read Romans 1 without reading Romans 8. You can't start a letter and not finish it. So you've got to go to Romans 8 with me. Now, I want to remind everybody here to do something that I've been challenging you to do since before Christmas. And that is this. I really love preaching God's Word. I love it. It's my favorite thing to do in the world. love doing this. But I don't want to waste my time either. And I don't want you to waste your time. So it would be amazing if every single time you came to one of our church gatherings on a Sunday morning that you took notes. You don't have to. I'm not mad at you if you don't. But I have found that when I'm taking notes, I'm keeping my mind engaged and I can receive a lot more when my mind is engaged. If you're just sitting there listening, I mean, you might be an incredibly great learner that way. Cool. But most people aren't. I want to encourage you to take notes and then go back and study those notes, listen to the sermon again, and make, consider making Romans 1, 16 through 32, your weekly devotional study and immerse yourself in those verses over the coming week. Now, if you did that, 52 weeks a year. Listen to a sermon, take notes, go home. A couple of times during the week, study the notes. Listen to the sermon again, maybe twice. I had somebody tell me the other day, they listened to it five times a week. And I said, I'm so sorry, you've got to do that. You know, but this person really likes listening to the sermon over and over and over again. I'm like, great, do it. If you did that, if you listened to the sermon a couple of times, two, three times throughout that week, you're getting your heart ready for the next Sunday. You've been immersing your heart in God's word from the last Sunday. If you did that every week in one year, what would happen to your spiritual life? I want you to grow, my friends. I want you to really grow. I want you to know God's word. And I want you to be amazed by God's word and captured by God's word. So I'm going to go to Romans 8 here. Don't start nodding off on me. Dig in with me, okay? Romans 8, check this out. Romans 8. Now, this isn't just like Bible. This isn't just like Scripture. Paul is telling us how the world and the universe works. This is how it works. He is answering our most fundamental questions around why we exist, what we're doing here, what we're supposed to be doing here. Where did the world come from and where is it going? He's answering the most fundamental, he's answering the rawest questions that we have. Check this out, Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Now he's talking to believers here. People who have been what we call born again. People who when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the lights came on. You just have faith. You believe it. The lights came on. He says, so, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There are times that I doubt. I bet some of you doubt too. 
There are times that in the ministry, I have doubted. And even though those seasons of doubt may come upon us and even push us down for a while, because of the Holy Spirit that's in my life, He always leads me out of that doubt. He bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. I just know that I am. I know that I know that I know that I am. And I want you to have that assurance as well. The spirit, only the spirit can do that. Okay, so he bears witness that we're his children. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs. Now, later in this text, he talks about what we're going to be the heirs of. A whole new world. Did anybody think of Aladdin when I just said that? Okay. Um, a whole new world. We're going to be the heirs of an entire new cosmos. I've preached this a lot. I'm going to always preach this because people in the American church have not heard this enough. We've been told that if we pray a prayer to get out of going to hell, that we'll get to float around one day with a harp. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is renewing the earth now and he is beginning with people who don't know Jesus and he's coming alive inside of us and we are the first fruits. We're the proof, believers are, all over the world that Jesus will one day return and transform this world into a new place, the new creation. Heaven and earth will become one and everyone who has faithfully followed Jesus will be resurrected with new bodies and we will live on this earth forever in the glow and the warmth of God's face. We will have real bodies. We will be together. We will enjoy one another. And there will be nothing but fullness of joy. We will long for nothing. He will give us himself. This is what we are heirs of. Now the reason he says we are heirs of this is because what he's about to say. Check this out. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. He's not saying here, that in order to be saved, you have to find suffering and go put yourself in it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this. We live in a broken, busted up world and we are all going to suffer. And those who are in Jesus will suffer in Jesus. And we will not medicate with the things of the world because we will remember we are heirs of Christ. And because we are heirs, we don't have to look for something in our immediate vicinity to cure our ills and fix us. We can set our hearts on the age to come when Jesus returns and ushers in the new creation. I'm not saying that good things can't happen here and we shouldn't pray for good things to happen here. Pray to your heart's content. What I'm saying is, is that the scriptures explicitly teach that we live in a broken world and the healing that we need is not here. It's in the age to come. So we must set our hearts on being heirs with God. When I think about my good friend back in college, I wish I could be 
in that conversation again and share Romans 8 with him. I wish I could look at him and say, brother, I don't know if God is ever going to change your sexual orientation. I don't know. But I know this. If you are faithful to God, you are the heir of something far more glorious than sexual satisfaction. I know that's easy for me to say. I'm married. I got kids. A lot of you are as well. But that doesn't mean that we can't still speak words of hope and truth into people's lives. I don't say this flippantly. I don't. I don't. I don't say this flippantly. I feel the weight of it. I feel the finger of people pointing at me saying, that's easy for you to say. I feel that. And part of the reason why it was so hard to prepare for this message this morning was because I don't want to alienate people who suffer through that. I don't want to. Because I know that there are some sitting in this room right now. And I desperately want people who struggle with same-sex attraction to know that you are loved and treasured in our church. That if you can't find one safe person here, come and find me because I will love you and walk with you. And I know others will too. I know they will. I'm not the only one. I want that to be the reality in our church, that we love the broken no matter what it is. No matter what it is. So last few verses. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and that word for sufferings in the original language refers to anything, not just stuff related to like persecution. I had somebody tell me one time that they didn't believe that we should preach suffering at our church because the only time the Bible talks about suffering is in relation to preaching the gospel and receiving condemnation from people in the world. And that's the only suffering God's children should receive. That's just not true. The word here for suffering relates to every kind of trial that we can experience. It can be being stuck in traffic and God starts working on your patience issues. It can be enduring with Jesus if you are a same-sex attracted Christian. It can be enduring with Jesus and remaining faithful to God and not acting out in the flesh and trusting Him in your suffering that you are an heir of the promise. It can be that. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Revealed. I'm going to stop there. We're going to pick up with how God reveals himself to us in his gospel, in his wrath, in his people. I know you're thinking, man, skip it next week. I'm telling you, you need to get a full a fully orbed understanding of suffering, the gospel, because this is the scripture's teaching on how we are to live in this world that is hard, hard, hard to live in. Anybody think this world's hard to live in? Yeah. Anybody want to run away? Anybody flirting with the grass on the other side being greener? We're going to face that every day. 
I want you to know how to navigate through that tension. Jesus, I thank you for your people. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your grace. God, I feel so inadequate with this message. And so I'm just putting it in your hands, Lord. Spirit, do your work. Do your work in people's hearts and lives. Do your work. We need you, God. We need you. We need you to help us by the power of the Spirit to live through and navigate through these tough, tough times in this tough, tough world and keep our heart set on the new creation. That won't be a tough world. That will be a world filled with beauty and joy and peace and relief. It'll be a world in which every tear is wiped away. Every heartache will be healed. It'll be a world where we will experience the healing power of Jesus in its full weight when you took stripes on your back for our condition. Jesus, we love you. I want to remind every one of us here that we get Jesus. The cup, the bread. Why do we do this? Because it reminds us that we're not missing out. I know you don't make a lot of money. I know you drive a car that you wonder if it will survive another week. I know that you are same-sex attracted. I know that you're a porn addict. I know that you are a victim of verbal abuse. And the impact that that has had on your soul, that has contorted your soul, is something that you have no hope that God could ever unravel. I am telling you today not to settle for any gift that this world will give you because we get Jesus. That may be just words to some of you, but we get Jesus. We get him. So you don't have to go into that affair. You don't have to. It will not heal you. Get Jesus. You don't have to give in anymore. I'm not saying the road's easy. I'm not. It's hard. But you get Jesus.